Good morning and welcome to Hope Church. Wonderful to see you, to have you here with us today. My name is Tim, I'm one of the uh, pastors here in the church. Today we begin a new series in the book of Luke. So if I can ask you to turn, please, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, fear not if you don't, the words will be on the screen. Overhead, great to have a Bible in hand though, particularly this morning we're going to look at the verses uh, in Luke 1. We're not going to be covering the whole chapter today. Next week, Becky will pick up around halfway through the chapter. We're focusing on the first 26 verses this morning, uh, first 25 verses in fact, and we'll read in a moment. As you're turning there, I, I was just in worship reminded of uh, a bit of a hero of mine and many of ours, the great preacher from the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was a pretty remarkable individual who God used mightily, set up orphanages, hospitals, schools, colleges, had a huge thriving church in London that really did meet the needs of the common person, um, great poverty in London in that time, and, and the church was very active in lifting people out of poverty. His story is a fascinating one, though. He grew up in a very Christian home um, and was surrounded by theology books and, and by the Bible, and he was very studious himself, always reading, always learning. But he, he went through his childhood years and, and his teen years with a great conflict within him. He felt, though he knew lots about God, he, he never had peace that he was forgiven of his sins. He never had peace that he was right with God. And he knew great turmoil in his heart. And he was battling constantly. How can I get to this point of peace and confidence that I'm okay with God? And he, he documents this in his uh, autobiography. And there was this one occasion where he found himself in the streets during a great blizzard. And, and he was walking the streets in this great snow, this great blizzard, and he saw a chapel open. And so he walks into this chapel halfway through a service. There's about 10 or 12 people there, he says. A little different to the scene before me today. You can't walk into a service like that and not get noticed. So he walks in, he sits at the back, trying to be inconspicuous. And dealing with this turmoil in his heart, wondering, might God speak to me? And the preacher in that moment clocks him. And he describes how he makes eye contact with him and he points at him. And he says, young man, have you looked upon the Lord for your salvation? Have you looked upon the Lord? You must look upon the Lord. You must look upon the Lord. And that was the phrase which was repeated, look upon the Lord, look upon the Lord. And he describes how in that moment everything changed. He said it, I and mean, he goes on to arguably be one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. He says it wasn't a great sermon, <laughs> but that phrase, he said, arrested my heart. And I knew then I was looking to the wrong place to find my peace. I was looking in the wrong places to find comfort for my soul. He said, I realized in that moment that I just needed to look unto the Lord. And as I did, everything changed. Now, I don't know on what basis you've come here this morning. I know no one came in here because of a blizzard outside. 
But you may have arrived at church for all kinds of reasons, and you may relate a little to where Charlie Spurgeon, the teenager, was at, and be asking for, for answers to those questions. Tim Keller said, God hasn't given us a watertight argument. If you're looking for, a, for an, a watertight argument for the existence of God, you're looking for something that just neatly and compactly deals with, with the existence of God and a lovely, neat argument. He says, you know, God's not given us a watertight argument. Rather, he's given us a watertight person. And it's that person that we look to. It's that person that is offered to us by God for the biggest questions of life that we all have. The biggest struggles in life that we all have. It's that person that God has provided for the, for the person, in, the individual in conflict and turmoil about the state of their own heart or the state of their own soul. It's that person that God has offered as a response to the state of the planet, the state of this nation. It's not a watertight argument necessarily, but it's the watertight person. And so I am very excited that we're going through this gospel because what we're doing as we read through the pages of Luke is that we are going to lift our eyes unto the Lord and we're going to spend time looking upon him, listening to him, learning from him, loving him, being changed by him, being led into paths of righteousness by him, knowing he's alongside us if we're walking through a valley, knowing that he's entered into a valley himself. We're going to look to Jesus together. What a privilege, hey? Let's read initially the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for sending your son to come into this world to live among ordinary people as an ordinary man with an extraordinary heart. We thank you that Jesus came as a baby, entered into a squalor and lived a perfect, perfect life. And we thank you that that life was documented. We thank you that we have this word, we have this gospel that tells us all about him. But we thank you, Lord, we're not just reading words in an academic way. But by your spirit, we're able to, to know and encounter that very person today. I pray, Holy Spirit, come and do what you love to do. Draw our attention to Jesus. Let our gaze be upon him today. May cold hearts be melted. May hard hearts be softened. May rebellious hearts be led into loving obedience. 
Lord, I pray meet with us and find us where we each are today. And may we each receive from you a word that is life-giving. Lord, I pray this because it glorifies you. Be glorified here among us, we ask. In your holy name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. In these first few verses, Luke sets out his objective for this gospel. He makes it very clear why he came to write it and how he came to write it and for whom he came to write it. We're told this is for Theophilus, most excellent, most honorable Theophilus. We have the same prologue in the the book of Acts as well. Who is this guy Theophilus? We don't know much about him. Speculate he was an honorable man, maybe a man of means, maybe someone in Rome, but we don't really know. His name means friend of God. It's a cool name, isn't it? Theophilus, someone who loves God, someone who's a friend of God. But this guy has heard many reports about Jesus. He has maybe read many things about Jesus. There are many reports about Jesus' life and ministry in circulation, and he picked up on them, and Luke was aware that he'd picked up on them. It's very easy for us to become over-familiar with the reports about the life of Jesus, to be very familiar with it. And in that familiarity, we might lose the power of his life. Let me explain. I want you just to imagine, like Theophilus, you started receiving reports about this man called Jesus of Nazareth. And maybe it went something like this. I, I was just talking to someone, and they told me about this guy called Jesus of Nazareth. They said that their friend was blind, and he healed him. Maybe that was one of the reports. Maybe another one was, um, there was this guy in the village just beyond mine, and his cousin was born paralyzed. And his friends lowered him through the roof of a hut to where Jesus was, and Jesus healed him. This guy, Jesus. Wow, astonishing. Or maybe you're hearing of a freak meteorological event that took place in the Galilean region. There was a great storm. No one could sleep. The winds, the rains, the thunder, the lightning, it was intense. And then suddenly, it stopped. And there was a clear day like that. And then the report of the disciples saying, the disciples of this Jesus of Nazareth saying, Jesus did it. We were in this storm. And then suddenly he spoke to the storm and it stopped instantly. Maybe you've heard that report. Maybe you've heard a report that there was this great crowd listening to him teaching one day. Thousands upon thousands. And and his teaching was so arresting. And so captivating that no one could leave. Everyone was just glued, listening to him. Before they realized it, four hours had passed, ten hours had passed, twelve hours were passed. It was getting dark. They hadn't eaten. Panic was beginning to ensue. Kids were crying and getting hangry. What what was going to happen? And you heard a report that Jesus got hold of a kid's lunchbox blessed it, 
And over 5,000 were fed by it. And there was so much left over, they filled 12 baskets full. Maybe you've heard that report. Maybe you heard some really dodgy reports of him. Maybe, maybe you heard reports that this man was a demon-possessed, and, and through the powers of darkness and evil, he was performing these signs. And you're thinking, what's true? How do we know what's true? Now, Luke makes it clear that this account of the life of Jesus, he has put together through very careful investigation. He says it literally, I have carefully investigated everything from the very first. So chronologically, I've carefully investigated everything. This guy, Luke, is a physician. We don't know an awful lot about him. We know he's a close companion of the Apostle Paul. But this is a guy who investigates this very carefully. And then he says in verse 4, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. I've carefully investigated everything because what, what you need to understand is everything I've written here, you need to know this, it's a true and honest account of his life. He's setting out to make it clear to this chap, Theophilus, and to you and to me that what we're going to read about Jesus Christ in these coming months is a true, carefully investigated account so that your confidence, your sense of certainty would increase in the wonderful things we've heard about Jesus Christ. Many have speculated, oh, this is just myth. This is just legend, this stuff. This, I'm sure if you're, you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've endeavored to talk to somebody about your faith, that you've had someone say to you, yeah, but you can't believe the Bible, can you? It's just a made-up book. It's amazing how often I've found myself in a conversation with very intelligent people who have said that. But as you investigate and read carefully around the historicity, that's the science of the history of this book, you find as an ancient text, it stands up as infinitely greater than any other ancient text that we might put our confidence in. In terms of the earliest manuscripts and the copies of it that we have, in terms of the consistency of the text from one manuscript to the next, it's, it's incredibly accurate and robust in how it's being copied. But not only that, the kinds of details that are included within this. We're told all kinds of random things, which you wouldn't include if they didn't happen, like in the storm that I mentioned, Jesus put his head down on a cushion. Well, what's the great theological significance of that? Well, there isn't one, it's just that's what happened. Or the fact that the great catch of fish, they counted 153 fish. Why would they include that? Because that was the number of fish that they caught. We have the names of specific people, Simon of Cyrene, Rufus and Alexander. We're told in the Emmaus Road that it was Cleopas who was one of the two disciples walking with Jesus. 5,000 people fed in one moment in the Galilean region. 
This book is written, scholars would estimate, around AD 60. So this would be maybe 25 years, 30 years after the events being described here. Many, 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 many people are still alive. It would have been so easy to discredit these reports by just some careful investigation into the eyewitnesses. Now, we have to bear in mind, this is written a couple of thousand years ago. So we don't have like footage that people recorded on their iPhones of the miracles that Jesus did. We have to interact with the material that we are reading here. And as an ancient document, there is no book like the Bible and like the Gospels if you're wanting to be confident in their integrity. And that's what Luke wants us to know right from the very beginning. I've carefully investigated this, that you may know the certainty of the things of which you've been instructed. They've been handed down, he says, by the eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. I love that. He's not kind of glamorizing the apostles. He's like, they're the servants of, of Jesus. They're the servants of the word. And they've handed these things down, these eyewitnesses. I hope you're not too familiar with these wonderful accounts of the life of Jesus. When I was in, back in London, the church in London that we were at, this uh, lovely couple got saved from um, uh, a very working class background. They'd not grown up in church. Their parents hadn't gone to church. They had no real understanding of Christianity at all. They were invited along to an alpha course and they, they got saved and their passion for Jesus just burned. And, and they, they were telling us one, one morning how they, this guy and his wife, every morning they would uh, read their Bibles together. They'd get up early and they'd read their Bibles. And she was slightly ahead in the Gospels than he was. And they said how they were reading the, their Bibles one day and she just suddenly gasps. <gasps> He's like, what? What happened? What is it? She's like, you won't believe what happens to John the Baptist. And he's like, don't tell me. I've not got to that bit yet. And it was, it was hilarious and it was challenging. I want to read that bit for myself. The reason why we can trust this book is not just its historical reliability as an ancient document. Not just that Luke investigates it really well and does a very thorough job with it. Not just that it tells of a true story either of things that really did happen. But God by the power of his Holy Spirit continues to speak those words and the freedom and the power of those words into the lives of men, women and children every day across the world. Today, thousands of people will come to a saving come to a saving faith and knowledge in Jesus Christ. Maybe here today. Maybe you're someone who's arrived here today and you've wandered into church and you're thinking like, you don't belong here. Why am I here? How have I found myself here? And I want to tell you, you're here because you need to look to Jesus who loves you and desires for you to have relationship with him. And for that reason, we have received this gospel by Luke. That's his stated objective. Now let's carry on reading from verse 5. So whilst this is cosmic in its scale, it's also deeply personal. 
Let's read. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. And we'll pause there. The scene here is set for some incredible events about to follow. And we are given some very important context for the lives of these two individuals, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Firstly, I want you to know what their names mean. Zechariah means God remembers. God remembers. Elizabeth means something like God is faithful. He's the oath-keeping, promise-keeping God. God is faithful. Now, the names in Scripture always have significance and meaning to them. And we can lose it because it's not so clear to us as we read. But bear in mind those definitions as we carry on reading. God remembers. God is faithful. God remembers. God is faithful. And so we're told that Zechariah is a priest and we're told that Elizabeth is the daughter of a priest, the daughter of Aaron. She can trace her ancestry right back to Aaron. And interestingly, Aaron's wife was also called Elizabeth. So these two have grown up within the context of the, the law of God, the word of God. They've grown up in the context of the anticipation of the Messiah coming. This would be a huge deal to them. They would be faithfully praying for the Messiah, the Savior, to come. In the context of the Roman Empire and the oppression that came with the Roman Empire, an incredible time to live. You're seeing horrific things all the time. And you're seeing the marginalization of the God that you know to be true. And you're wondering, when are things going to change? They've grown up in this context. They are... He's a priest and she's the daughter of a priest. And, and here we're told both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame. Both were righteous in God's sight. What a thing that is. What a thing that is. I w- imagine, I just want you to just take this moment, consider yourself righteous in God's sight. Wow. Wow. To know that spoken over you, you're righteous in God's sight. You see, there are many priests and Pharisees who were righteous in the sight of the people, but were evil in the sight of God. But these two, we're told, are righteous in God's sight. You see, God sees, not as man sees. Man looks to the external things, we're told, but the Lord looks to the heart. And these two have a heart that is righteous, that is without blame. That doesn't mean to say that they are sinless. And indeed, as we go on to discover with Zechariah, he's still a man who makes mistakes and gets it wrong. But as far as the Lord is concerned, he's seeing this couple and they are righteous, which means they have faith in God to be their savior. That's what righteousness has always meant. 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't his works, it was his faith in God. And so they are a people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are men and women of faith and confidence in God as their savior, in God as their Lord. That's who they are, they're righteous in his sight. You can receive that by faith today. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous. Not by your works, not by your successes, your brilliance. In fact, all that any of us ever bring are our failures to the table. And he brings his righteousness, his perfect life. He, he brings his holiness and he, got, he, he puts those garments on, on us. So often we are navel-gazing. Look unto the Lord. That's where my righteousness is. My righteousness is in heaven. Christ is my righteousness. In him is my hope. In him is my trust. In him is my faith. That's who these two are. They had faith in him, in Christ. They had faith in the coming Messiah. Everything is pointing to the Lord. Everything to this point has been pointing to the Lord who would come. And things are beginning to really build up here. But they could not conceive. They had no children. Both of them were well along in years. The shame of not having children was great in this day and age. This couple, now elderly, have lived and did live the majority, the vast majority of their lives with this deep pain. A pain that many of you can relate to. And, and, and issues relating to infertility and childlessness, we find right through the Bible. And we find over and over again, those that God uses so significantly often have a story like this to tell. Abraham and Sarah being the most obvious couple who also were old in, in age, long in years, and hadn't had a child. Think of Hannah who, who weeps. And is so expressing her agony and pain that people think she's completely drunk and, and, and in a shameful place. And she said, I'm not drunk, I'm just, I'm longing for this child. This is their condition. But the thing is, we're told before that they're righteous, okay? Their infertility and their struggle to conceive is not as a consequence of a lack of faith, is not a punishment from God. That is categorically not what it is. And how often that gets twisted. Your lack of faith is the reason why you haven't had this blessing. Your lack of trust in God is the reason why you haven't received this miracle. You're the problem. No, we are told very clearly this is a blameless and this is a righteous couple. They are not a perfect couple, but their faith is in God and they're commended for it. And yet they live with this struggle their whole life. This pain of not being able to conceive a child. Verse 8. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God... It happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. Now, what we need to bear in mind is this was a remarkable thing for him. 
they estimate scholars that there, there could be as many as 80,000 priests. And a priest gets chosen by lot to go in and offer the incense in the context of the temple. Zechariah gets chosen. This is literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest. This, this doesn't happen again. This happens once. He gets chosen by lot. Because, of course, our God is sovereign and determines even the outcome of the throw of a dice. He gets chosen by lot to enter in and to offer the incense to the Lord. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. So that is a vast crowd. Tens of thousands of people. This is a huge ceremonial moment as incense is offered in the context of the temple, as devout Jews are worshipping God and obeying the law. Verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. We'll stop there. Terrified and overcome with fear. Now, I just want to make a comment about angels for a moment. As you read the Bible, you tend to have two reactions to angels that you see. On the one hand, you have this reaction, fear and terror. Because you're seeing this heavenly being in this glory, and it's so striking and powerful that those that encounter an angel like this fall face down. And in Revelation 22, John even attempts to worship an angel. And the angel says, no, 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 you don't worship me. I'm a servant like you are. Terrified. We find as the angels appear, there's terror. Or, as we read Hebrews 13, we're told we don't even know that they're there. They're inconspicuous. Some of you, as you throw a dinner party, paraphrasing, are entertaining angels without even realizing it. Wow, there's an idea. So it kind of challenges the idea of us just casually meeting an angel when we're walking along the road. Terror? Well, we don't know about it. That, that's, that's what we read in the Bible. And so Zechariah is terrified here by this angel. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, God remembers, Zechariah. Do not be afraid, God remembers, because your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never drink wine or beer he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. And it is this phrase which I love in verse 13. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Now, again, try and imagine Zechariah's, what's going on in his head right now. I mean, firstly, he's like, oh my goodness. Does this happen to everyone? 
who comes in and does the incense thing? No, no, no. This is, this is an exceptional moment. As the angels start appearing, something exceptional is about to happen. He has this privilege of encountering the powerful angel. The angel says, don't be afraid. Your prayer's been heard. Now, of course, the question is, what prayer? If I'm Zechariah, I'm thinking, what prayer? What prayer have I just been praying? What prayer have I been laboring with? I tell you what he knew he wasn't. Th- I tell you what he wasn't thinking is, oh, great, we're going to have a baby then. That was not what he was thinking. Because he is well on in age, well past the age of childbearing. So the last thing he's thinking is, is that. But his prayer has been heard. The prayers of Elizabeth and Zechariah were echoing in the courts of the Almighty God. They were heard. This is a prayer that they hadn't prayed for years and years. This was the prayer of their 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. The prayer they thought God just simply didn't hear. The prayer they thought somehow got lost out there in the heavenly places. God didn't hear it. And they have lived through these decades still faithfully walking with God and trusting him. Despite the fact this great longing of their hearts this, this great desire was never met or fulfilled for them. They didn't give up upon their God as a consequence. And what does that show? Does it not show that their God was a greater treasure to them, even than the greatest of treasures that they could have hoped for upon the earth? That they knew a treasure in him greater even than the longing for a child, which is a God-given longing, a good desire, and a good longing. It shows that even the prayers that we've given up on, God hasn't. Even those prayers that we were convinced he just refused to answer, They've been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. What have you prayed? What have you brought before God? What have been the prayers that you've labored over? Who have been the people that you've labored over? What have been the longings, the desires? Maybe those which you you think God's never actually ever seemed to respond to or answer. Yet you're still here with unanswered questions and unfulfilled longings and yet still you're walking with Jesus and I want to say well done and commend you for it because sadly many give up. You know when it says in the word of God don't build your house on sand but build your house on the rock and remember that word that came to Spurgeon look unto the Lord Lift your eyes. 
set your minds on things above. This is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And yet, just at the right moment, just at the right time, the miraculous happens. The miracle happens. This is the message of the angel. And this is Zechariah's reaction. Bearing in mind, he's in the context of this awesome angel who is like worshipping, bowing down before one moment ago, like in, in fear of. He wasn't worshipping him, but he was in fear of him. This is the next thing it says. He goes, how can I know this? How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. It's a legitimate question to ask. How can I know this? Really? We're going to be seeing the response of Mary to a very similar announcement. She doesn't get a rebuke. And I'm not going to go there because I'm sure we'll be covering this next week. But his reaction is actually unbelief. I don't believe this. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Wow, <laughs> that's quite a rebuke. <laughs> okay, I was talking to God a moment ago. I was, I was in his presence. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the angel. Angelus means messenger. I'm coming to bring a message to you. I was in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. What's the most impossible thing that God could do for you? What's the most impossible thing? What's the most impossible thing? If we read through the Bible and trace the story of the Bible, we arrive at a very clear answer to that question. The most impossible thing is to take someone who is dead in sin and to make them alive, spiritually alive. The most impossible thing is to take hearts of stone and to make them into hearts of flesh. The most impossible thing is to take an army of dry bones and to breathe upon it flesh and, and armor and to raise up an army. The most impossible thing is where you have someone who is against God, is an enemy of God, is, is uh, opposed to God, and then suddenly is a worshiper of God. The very clear message of the scriptures is to be born again. Impossible to enter through the eye, for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. Ah, but all things are possible with God. So if you're here today and you have a heart full of love towards Jesus Christ, if you're here and you know that God is alive and Jesus Christ is that God, if you're, to, if you're here today and you believe that he was crucified and resurrected three days later, and you believe that he did that to remove sin from your life and to remove judgment for your life, and you've accepted him into your heart, let me tell you that the most impossible thing that could have happened in your life has happened in your life.
And if God could do that, then he can do everything else. And so when he doesn't do the other things that you hoped he would, it's for good reason. And you maybe haven't yet understood how it is that God's glorified through it, but he will be glorified through it. So the disciples said, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. But the glory of God is going to be seen through his life. You and I exist for that end, that he would be glorified. And that can mean that you go through some excruciating things. The word of God says, if you suffer with Christ, you will be glorified with him. And so I want to speak to you today. If you are grieving, maybe if you're struggling with infertility, and I know there are a number of those who are in this church. There aren't straightforward answers to those kinds of questions. But I do feel confident as I read this narrative, and as I read through the scriptures that those things that man intended for evil, God intends for good. And he has a good purpose for your life. You may have been bereaved in a terrible way. You may have lost people close to you. And I know in this room there are people who will say, and he's been my comforter through every moment. And he stood with me and walked with me. It's been a joy hearing. So one of the things I've loved most, genuinely, probably the thing I've loved the most since coming here, has been hearing so many testimonies of God's faithfulness in people's lives. People who have lost children. People who have suffered infertility. People who have lost jobs and houses. There have been so many of these stories and, and hearing, yet God's been with me. Treasure in heaven. My mum my had, I'm one of four children. My mum had many miscarriages before I was born. And when, I, when she was pregnant with me, around 20 weeks, told that I died in the, in the womb, that, I, that she'd lost the child. She'd had this story of pain that she went through for many years and prayed and prayed and prayed. And on this occasion, you know, the baby came. And they're a miracle. We're all miracle people, right? <laughs> all of us. We're all miracles. We're all a, a work of the miraculous power of God. Every conception is precious. Every conception, every baby in the womb is precious. Filled with a spirit in the womb. Wow. And he's coming for this moment and for this reason to point people to Jesus. That's why John the Baptist came. He's going to point people to Jesus. And we're going to find his conception is even more miraculous than John the Baptist's. Even more miraculous. We want to be a church that points people to Jesus. I'd like to invite the band to come. Why don't we stand together? What prayers have you prayed? What prayers have you prayed?
we're, we're touching on massive subjects here. And, and as a pastor, one of the hardest things that you journey with anyone on is infertility. It's just one of the hardest things. So I'm aware this is very sensitive and difficult territory. The Bible goes there for a reason. Let's pray. Let's just open our hands to God if we're comfortable and close our eyes to him. Lord, I, I thank you that you see into our hearts and you see where we are. We, you see our pain. You see our, our sorrows. You see our faith. You see Christ's righteousness. You see us. And I pray, Lord, would we see you in our pain and in our struggle. Would you lift our eyes to you? May we lay hold of our Lord God Almighty. And Lord, if we find ourselves in a blizzard and we've, we're entering in for some kind of comfort, Lord, I pray would you take us to a, a realm of comfort that we never expected this morning a place of true security that we would know the certainty of these things. We would know the certainty of a God who hears the prayers of his people. We'd know the certainty of a God who's compassionate, kind and merciful and gracious, who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. A God who lavishes us with his grace that flows from heaven like a river into our hearts. Sweep us up in the river of your grace, I pray this morning, and bring healing and work miracles because this story says you do miracles I pray do miracles in our lives to your glory in Jesus name Amen